You're listening to Key Matters from Kappa Kappa Gamma with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. Okay, Dr. Oz, in case you thought I wasn't going to come back to you, you get to go next with 1894. <laughs> um, 1894 um, has some of the same characteristics that 1893 does in just terms of, of content, but I will kick it off with talking about the context uh, for that year. On April 14th, the first public showing of Thomas Edison's kinetoscope uh, took place. So that's an early form of moving pictures. And then on July 4th, the Republic of Hawaii was proclaimed and Sanford B. Dole was the first president. And then November 1st, the vax or a vaccine for diphtheria was announced in Paris. Since January's and July's issues both devote quite a bit of space to settlement houses, I thought I would take this opportunity to talk about one of my favorite Kappas, Mary Kingsbury Simkovich, who has a profile in the latest issue of The Key. Mary was born in, in, um, in Massachusetts, outside of Boston, and, and attended Boston University. She came of age in the progressive era, which was a time in which educated elites initiated reforms and to find solutions to various social problems, which you've mentioned that in uh, your discussion of the 1893 issue. One of the, the social problems that these elites were attacking was this, all the problems or problems that they perceived to be associated with the waves of immigration that the United States was experiencing in the 1880s and 1890s. So large cities such as New York and Philadelphia and Boston were experiencing overcrowding in certain areas, which led to tensions in a number of neighborhoods, um, which resulted from a mix of different social classes and ethnicities and religions. A number of acts were passed during this era many that pertain to labor. So the eight hour workday was established, factory inspections became law and uh, legislation that related to uh, public education. In this era, the federal government became more centralized and powerful. And when Mary was a college student, she became interested in social reform because of everything that was happening um, at the time. She later wrote a memoir about her experiences in the settlement house movement called Neighborhood, My Story of Greenwich House, which was published in 1938. And that, um, I believe, is out of print today, but you can find copies on um, Alibris and um, other used books websites. Um, Mary's introduction to settlement house work began um, Again, when she was a college student, she worked in a number of houses just to gain experience and exposure to different kinds of settlement houses. They aren't all, or they weren't all run in the same way. Uh, she became involved with Jane Addams Hull House, which was like the, the settlement house to, um, to visit or to kind of the, um, just the one to model. And, but she knew that she wanted to start her own uh, settlement house. Basically what a settlement house did in that time was um, kind of like a community center today. It helped build uh, relationships with the, uh, the residents of a particular neighborhood. It provided especially newcomers and immigrants with resources to affect social change. 
the settlement house itself would often be equipped with a library, uh, like basically a public lending library. Um, They also contained rooms that could be used for meetings and classes, so basically multi-purpose rooms. Uh, Residents of the neighborhood would come to the settlement house to learn about cooking, childcare, literacy, among other subjects. Mary was involved with managing the daily operations of several of the houses that she volunteered at. She learned how to deal with people's questions and problems and then connect them to the appropriate resources. One of her favorite activities was leading the Sunday Evening Economics Club at the College Settlement House. And as I said earlier, she did want to start um, a settlement house of her own because she believed that a settlement house should be free from religious dogma. So she wanted her organization to provide programs and services without stipulating that a resident practice a certain uh, denomination. So her her settlement house, Greenwich House, was uh, non-sectarian. In her mind, a settlement house should allow residents to, quote, voice their wrongs, to understand their problems, to stand by their side in their life struggles, to welcome their own leadership, to reveal to others who have not had this opportunity of direct contact, the inner character of situations that arise is the primary task of the settlement, end quote. And that is from her book, Neighborhood, My Story of Greenwich House. So here's a fun fact. Crystal Eastman, who was a lawyer, teacher, and journalist, and Frances Perkins, the first woman appointed to the U.S. Cabinet as Secretary of Labor, both worked at Greenwich House for a time. Mm-hmm. Um, that covers the, the January issue of the key. In July, there's also another um, essay about the Settlement House movement, which kind of casts a different light on, on this reform, uh, this essay is by Florence Bascom. She is also profiled in, in the latest issue of The Key. And she talks about how different, there's a proliferation of settlement houses. So now there are some, and she's talking about some in Philadelphia. And this really brought to mind that for me that there were critics of the movement because it was so popular with these young, educated, college-educated white women that you, you really had to wonder about their motivations. Were they doing it to really help residents become self-sufficient the way Mary Simkovich was? Or were they engaged in this kind of work because it was the popular thing to do? Or because they thought that they could mold uh, these these immigrants into a a certain image. And Florence, she says, uh, says here at, this is, she's talking about Denison House in Philadelphia. The association in, um, but this isn't, her quote is an example of kind of this elitist attitude that is a factor in this reform. Um, But basically she, she equates Denison House with associating with a more, then these are her words, not mine, shiftless element of colored people with the Russian and German Jews and with the Italians. And so this, this idea reflects sort of a white savior mentality and the attitudes associated with social Darwinism, which were so prevalent at this time that that legislation involving immigration was you know, being discussed and, and later passed. And so it's, it's unfortunate that she expressed those ideas, but, but they were quite common at the time, especially among 
educate yeah, educated people. Well, and that's when everyone is jumping on the bandwagon of eugenics. And, yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So, so I, I thought I would I would present both sides. You have Mary Simkovich, who I believe was very sincere in wanting to equip people with the resources so that they could become independent and make contributions to society and not trying to change them. Hence the reason for founding a settlement house of her own that was non-sectarian. And then you have the Florence Bascoms of the world. So, (sighs) yeah. But I would be remiss if I didn't talk about both sides. So glad you did. Thank you. So moving on to April, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Catherine Sharp. She's another favorite Kappa. She's from Upsilon chapter at Northwestern. And the reason I like Catherine so much is because she was a librarian and she helped found the University of Illinois School of Library Science. And some people have a false impression even today of what librarianship is. It's not reading books all day. That would be awesome if that's all, but it's, (laughs) if that's, the only thing that you had to do all day, but it is a science, it is a profession. And at that time that, that Catherine was an undergraduate and pursuing librarianship, becoming a librarian even then was not for the faint-hearted. The Bachelor of Library Science degree at the New York State Library School where Catherine attended was awarded only to those who had maintained a record of over 90% in every study in the course. So you had to be on the ball. And and it really shows that librarianship was becoming specialized. It was becoming a profession. It's a science of managing information. And that's uh, one of her main contributions to the profession was finding different ways of organizing information and making it available to the public. Well, and for better or for worse, she was also considered protege of Dewey from the decimal system. So I think like everyone at that time, they had some opinions that have not aged well, but overall, I think she is a credit to the field of library science. So then, uh, and again, this issue was short on on news or there was a lot of talk of social events and that kind of thing but in october just some things that kind of made me chuckle the editor attended convention in she said in her official capacity which made it more challenging to enjoy the time as a visitor and that reminded me of my first time well my only time so far at convention was that yeah, just attending an official capacity, you are concerned with other things and making sure that things are running well and that people find what they need and you answer questions. And so I, I do kind of wonder what it would be like to attend just as as a visitor. And it must be a, must be a different experience. Convention was held or was, yeah, it was held at um, Cornell or, or at least side chapter was in charge. So that was neat because that's Dr. Crawford's chapter, but we're a few issues away from Dr. Crawford. Um, <laughs> That was, that's my one link. I didn't have no, no research unicorns. I mean, I hit all your favorite topics. So I'm not sure why you felt like you had to toss that one in, but that's cool. <laughs> um, well, I did compile these notes before we recorded. So I wasn't before, sure if you were going to come across. Before you knew how many I was going to hit for you. Yeah. yeah. Um, the only other thing that I wanted to mention, oh, two other things, is that there's a report on graduate education for women. So now Yale and the University of Pennsylvania are beginning to offer advanced degrees to women students. 
And the author of this report says, <laughs> the study at the university level is more intense than at the college level. Quote, as a rule, the students have outlived that period when new friendships and intimacies are the inevitable result of new surroundings and are both able and content to live the recluse existence demanded of a scholar. And I thought, well, I mean, as a person who has attended graduate school, I, mean, I don't know that I would have considered myself a recluse at the time, but I mean, probably I really just went to class or taught and then came home or went to the library and came home and did more work. So I guess that is kind of being a recluse, but I didn't really think about that at the time. I mean, I survived, so it, it, but it is, it is a different existence, I would say, than as an undergraduate. Yeah, you're, you're definitely more devoted to your course of study. Yeah. Not as many extracurriculars at the graduate level. No, unfortunately. Well, they have there. I did know students who were engaged in other kinds of extracurriculars, but that's another story. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, just one other interesting thing is that because because you mentioned uh, Barnard chapters that are located at city colleges, they report tending to have difficulty engaging in Kappa, in the social life, being a Kappa, that that is more challenging for them um, to have that full Kappa experience. And the author of this letter said, because you know, students are scattered all over the city. So having a meeting or trying to organize some kind of activity is more difficult because you have to think about transportation and just everybody's schedules. And it really highlights the fact that chapters, different chapters at different schools, they have different needs. Um, so there isn't just, there isn't just one experience. And then, you know, this is part of a challenge of growing the organization is that, you know, you have this divide between chapters in the West and chapters in the East, and then, you know, just the difference between rural and urban life. So mm -hmm. that, it's know. almost like the urban campuses, they're living more of an existence as alumni, but, but then they don't have that initial basis of, like you were saying, the difference between undergrads and graduate students. They don't have that basis of experience of being in close quarters more frequently. <laughs> yeah, they don't, they don't have chapter houses. They don't have dorms. They're you know, living. And just in reading through histories in my own experience, it seems that a lot of the time, those of us who are from, like I went to a small rural school that had housing and my chapter lived in a chapter house um, so that experience is very different than an urban experience. But just from what I have read, the students that did have that urban experience, they almost worked harder and maybe were a little bit better at making sure they were connecting with one another because they couldn't just take advantage of the fact that they were already in the same place at the same time. So. That wraps up my analysis. And that's all that I have. <laughs> You've been listening to Key Matters, brought to you by Kappa Kappa Gamma, with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. Our headquarters is in Columbus, Ohio. Our house museum is in Monmouth, Illinois. You can find us online at kappa.org, or you can peruse our digital archives at kappa.historyit.com. Research and production is done by Dr. Mary Osborne and me, Kylie Smith. Thank you.